Listener Production. The following episode contains elements that may cause distress to some listeners. If it does, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14. Hi, I'm Rosie Waterland. This is Mum Says My Memoir is a Lie. You will watch your mum attempt suicide and realise that she's the only one who understands you. Mummy? That was all I needed to say for her to snap into action. She booked me on a flight using her very limited cash to go and stay with her and her boyfriend in Dubbo. She explained things the way they needed to be explained to someone who's beyond hysterical. Rosanna, you need to get out of bed, darling. You need to pack a bag with some clothes. Oh, I feel weird doing your voice when you're sitting here. I'm not going to try and act it. I'm just going to read it, okay? Because otherwise I feel lame. Mm-hmm. Okay. Rosanna, you need to get out of bed, darling. You need to pack a bag with some clothes. How long has it been since you've had a shower? Okay, you need to take a shower. Your plane leaves in four hours, so as soon as you're ready, call a taxi and go to the airport. But you can't leave any later than 2 p.m., When you get to Dubbo, get into a taxi and go to the address that I text you. It's going to be all right, darling. You can stay here as long as you need. What do you feel like for dinner? Rick wants to cook you something special. Just like when I was little, something about her calling me darling calmed me down. My mum was always the last person I called for any kind of help with, well, anything. She was usually drunk or belligerent or just wanted to bitch about how one of my sisters had come over and eaten all her cabanossi. But after spending almost a month in a mental home, even I just needed my mummy. And she understood that. She was the only person in my life who understood what I was going through. She understood what it felt like to have your brain insist that death is the only option, then to wake up the next day and have your brain laugh at you and say, lol jokes, you fucking nutcase. She was the only person who understood that I was incapable of being an adult right then, that I could barely get out of bed, let alone book a flight, that even having to speak was like trying to force my body to lift an anvil. My mum knew that the dishes piled next to my bed couldn't be washed. She knew that I wasn't just going to go for a run. She knew that my body was stone and my mind was trying to eat itself. My mum knew all of that because she'd been there herself so many times. She knew that all I needed was to be taken care of because that's all she'd wanted so many times in the past. I needed my mummy and my mummy finally felt like she was in a position to help. I got on the plane to Dubbo. She came to the door in her dressing gown and pulled me into a warm hug. I just wanted to suck every inch of her in and never let go. Apparently, when I was a baby, I would scream like a freaking banshee unless my mum was holding me. Nobody else could stop the crying. It probably had something to do with the fact she took off when I was a few weeks old to party with her friends in Sydney and would take off sporadically after that. I think I was a baby genius. Even I knew her presence was never going to be guaranteed, so when she was around, I insisted on being held. And here I was again, 24 years old, getting the hug I desperately needed. Inside, Rick was already cooking me dinner and the couch had been made up like a bed. Neither of them said anything about why I was there or where I'd been. They just welcomed me into their home and got to work looking after me. I flopped down on the couch and didn't get up again for my entire visit. They brought meals to my lap so I wouldn't have to move. My mum sat with me at night and for the first time ever, we drank together. She sat with me at my laptop and listened as I read aloud the insufferable long emails I was planning on sending Luca. She nodded earnestly and told me that they definitely weren't ridiculous or desperate when they absolutely were. We laughed about my sisters and watched TV together and I snuggled into her shoulder while I fell asleep. 
We talked about how nobody understands what it feels like to have such pain and emptiness inside you that you can barely move or speak. We talked about how the brain in your head when you try to kill yourself is different from the brain in your head when you feel fine. As I sat on that couch in Dubbo, eating roast chicken and cheesy potato bake and drinking cheap wine, I realised that I was so lucky to have a mother who understood what it felt like to be surrounded by darkness. As she took care of me and cleared my plates away and didn't complain that I hadn't showered once since I had arrived, I realised that she was the only person in my life who really understood what it felt like to have no control over your brain. Just like when I was a baby, she was the only one who could comfort me now. She had failed me so many times before, but this week, this one week, she was there. And I couldn't help but think about how I had seen her in just as much pain a few years before, and I'd left her on her own. Just a few years earlier, when I was 21 and staying with mum for a few weeks while I looked for a place of my own, I had stood by and watched through a window while she tried to kill herself. 30 seconds earlier, and I would have walked straight past that window and not seen a thing. 30 seconds earlier and I would have made it to my bedroom, never noticing that my mum was outside trying to hang herself in the darkness. But it wasn't 30 seconds earlier, and as soon as I saw her through that window dragging a flimsy dining room chair towards the front yard's only tree, I knew what she was doing. And I had so been looking forward to watching Letterman. I should have known that the evening was going to end in a particularly dramatic suicide attempt. After starting on her first bottle of wine mid-afternoon, by the time she finished her fourth at 7pm, she had already reached what I like to call her dignified royal stage, a stage which involves far too much faux indignation for someone who only makes it to the toilet half the time. <laughs> well, sorry, Mum. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> It usually consisted of her sitting in the living room like a freshly crowned beauty queen, head held high and movement so fluid she was practically floating. Her cheap wine might as well be crystal, her pleather couch a throne. And there she would sit, taking grand, calculated sips from her mug of booze as she held a... <laughs> This is a very good description yeah, of what you were like, what you yeah, used to no, be like when you were drink drinking. <laughs> And there she would sit, taking grand, calculated sips from her mug of booze as she held her cigarette between her fingers like a sexy Disney villain. Rosanna, she would say, in an accent that fell somewhere between her North Shore childhood and the cockroach-infested Liverpool rental where she currently sat. You, darling, have gained so much weight. No response. Or how did I end up surrounded by so many fucking bogans? No response. Or why can't I fucking just send a fucking text to your fucking sister without the fucking thing being a fucking fuck? Sympathy shrug. <laughs> that is like you. Slapping <laughs> <laughs> serious. I tried to keep her company for a while that night. <laughs> Stop laughing. <laughs> this is about to get very serious. I know, I know. Okay. I tried to keep her company for a while that night, but after a few hours of being picked apart by someone wearing green eyeliner and no pants, I decided it was probably in my best interest to bail out. I went to my room, turned on the TV and closed the door. Nothing ever made me feel quite as safe as the sound of my bedroom door closing. TV in bed had been my refuge since childhood. As long as I had a door that closed and a show that made me laugh, I could pretend the mother in the next room was the perfect mix of Carol Brady and Lorelai Gilmore. 
I would have even settled for Roseanne, to be honest. I was pretty much just aiming for someone who didn't drunkenly listen to Bittersweet Symphony on repeat, usually while snot crying and eating olives out of a jar. I'd had a TV friend in my room since I was four years old, and it was still keeping me company in my 20s. But on this particular night, just minutes before Letterman was about to start, my body betrayed me. I was forced to leave the confines of my free-to-air sanctuary. Basically, I needed to wee. And it was on my way back to bed, as I walked past the upstairs window, that I spotted her dragging that bloody chair to that bloody tree. Damn you, bladder. I could tell she was thinking about how fabulously tragic the whole thing would look. She was wearing a pink satin dressing gown and nothing else, no doubt hoping that it would fall open dramatically as she hung, displaying the body that always got her through tough times. Oh, that's kind of mean. Sorry, Mum. The glow of the streetlights revealed that she had placed her frizzy curls into as elegant an updo as she could manage, and she was definitely wearing more jewellery than she had been just hours earlier. I stood silently at the window and watched as she positioned the chair under the tree. I was surprised to see that she'd had the forethought to take rope, although I had no clue where she'd got it. I'd like to say she'd been on some morbid version of one of her shoplifting sprees, but considering the lack of planning that had most likely gone into this, I assume tonight's hardware probably came from a store called The Neighbour's Clothesline. She hoisted her mystery rope over the sturdiest-looking branch the tree had to offer and carefully climbed up on the chair as best as a person who's been drinking for nine hours can. Her dressing gown slipped open, perhaps a little too early for her dramatic reveal, but impromptu performances like this rarely went to plan. She put the makeshift noose around her neck. She tightened it. I knew I should be moving by now, but my feet were frozen to the floor, my eyes fixated on her face. What if I just let it happen this time? What if I pretended it was 30 seconds earlier? What if I had never seen anything through that window and I was already sitting in bed watching Letterman bounce jokes off Paul Schaefer? Nobody knew I was standing there. Nobody knew I was watching. Nobody knew that I left my room to wee. That 30 seconds was my clay to mould. She was struggling with the chair now, trying to tip it over. She couldn't use her hands and the rope was too short to readjust, so she just ended up rocking her whole body from side to side, trying to build up enough momentum to get the bloody thing to move. And just as I was thinking that attempted suicide, along with coughing and vomiting, was probably one of the more unattractive things a person could do while naked, the chair tipped over. She hung from the tree, gown open, feet shaking, and I didn't move. I just stood there watching. I just stood there. I thought back to the time years before when I was just a kid and I sat with her on the side of the road, desperately trying to think of the right response to, but Rosie, I just want to die. I told her that her daughters needed her, that she needed to see us grow up. I told her that I was going to write books and win an Oscar and become a millionaire and buy her a house that she'd never have to worry about leaving again. I told her I would take care of her, but I was only nine, so she needed to just wait a little longer. I told her I was cold and wanted to go inside. I thought back to the time I found her in a random park in the middle of the night, a slit in her wrist so deep I was actually a little impressed she had managed it with such a flimsy kitchen knife. She sat on the grass quietly, staring blankly ahead as I tried to hold the gash together with a tea towel. I walked her home and put her to bed, then spent the entire night trying not to fall asleep so the grip I had on her wrist wouldn't loosen. Move, Rosie, move! I silently willed my body to leap into action, but it remained frozen in front of the window. It felt heavy, tired. The glow of the TV was luring me to my room, and the idea of rest seemed too good to pass up. Rest for her, rest for me, rest, finally, for all of us. 
I could pretend I'd walk past that window 30 seconds earlier and I could just let it happen. My mind was grappling with the complexities of a decision I should not have been attempting to make while wearing Hello Kitty pyjamas. But before I could make a choice, before I could decide whether I wanted those 30 seconds to exist or not, it happened. The branch broke. The fucking branch broke. My mum fell to the ground, gasping for breath and ruining her frizzy updo. The decision had been made for me. I watched as she slowly rose to her feet and, in what I considered an odd moment to suddenly feel modest, closed her dressing gown. She took the rope from around her neck and dropped it on the grass. Then she just walked back inside, and that was it. I heard the downstairs TV switch on and the unmistakable clink of a wine bottle hitting a glass. I took one final look at the branch lying on the front lawn before heading into my room and closing the door. 30 seconds earlier and I would have missed the whole thing. Her feet were only off the ground for a fleeting moment, but that branch breaking meant I never got to make my own decision. Was I about to move? Was I about to snap into action? Was I just about to run to her aid like I had so many times before? That branch breaking means I'll never truly know if I would have saved my mother's life that night. 30 seconds earlier and I wouldn't have to spend the rest of my life wondering if I'm the kind of person who would just watch her mother die. And as I sat on that couch in Dubbo a few years later, desperately clinging to every ounce of comfort she was giving me, I felt so guilty knowing that once I had given her none, even though I knew that her comfort wouldn't last and that once I got home it wouldn't be long before the drunken, abusive phone calls would start up again. But she had given me this one week. She knew she was the only one who understood and she flew me out to her couch in Dubbo and fed me and tucked me in and stroked my hair and called me darling. She gave me what I needed that week, and if the branch hadn't broken, I'd have been all alone, just like she was the night I nearly watched her die. That's the last hard one, Mum. Mm. For you. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> um, do you remember that night? No, I don't remember it. Because I know that you... I know, that, I know there was a tree out the front. You have insisted to me many times that I made that story up. Yeah, probably. Because I can't really remember. You can't remember it at all? Mm, no, not really. I remember thinking I was crazy I might, because... I, I might have. I don't, I don't know. <coughs> what I do vaguely you mean? I don't know. I vaguely remember something about that tree, but I don't remember exactly what happened with mm. the tree. So... Probably, yes, something did happen. And, like, I don't think you'd make it up. You insisted that I did. And you... Maybe you didn't because I... You insisted that the tree... amnesia. You insisted that that tree wasn't there. No, there was a tree. The tree was too small. It could never have held you and all this stuff. And I started to think I was losing my mind. I thought the tree was pretty small. No, it's a big tree. <laughs> and we even drove past it once and I pointed I it out to you. I know there's a tree and I remember because I I put Harold the huntsman onto that tree. Um I thought so I, I was going crazy because you kept insisting that it hadn't happened to the point where I thought like maybe I did make this up. And so then I talked to my psychiatrist Stephen about it because I was like my mum says that this didn't happen but I remember it happening and he was like no you came in to your session like 2 days after it happened and you were really distressed and he's like I've got it in my notes we talked about it like 2 days after it happened so it happened. Mm. And um 
but yeah, for so long you wouldn't, you said that it didn't happen and now you don't remember it at all. Mm. No. Why do you think you did that so many times? Oh, because I think attempted I was, to hurt yourself. Because basically, I just felt things were absolutely hopeless, and, mm. and then the 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 effects of alcohol on me was absolutely insane. Like as a depressant. Yeah, I mean, I could go from being really happy, yeah, a happy drunk, to in- incredibly bloody depressed in in a matter of bloody half an hour. You are co- you are a completely different person when you're drunk. Completely different. I wouldn't say completely different, would you? Well, would you say completely there's different? like two sides to you when you're drunk. You are that like super snooty, snobby Disney villain that I described, mm. um, who like acts like a royal and <laughs> insults everyone around you and thinks it's hilarious. Mm. And then you get really depressed and go to your room and listen to Bittersweet Symphony and don't come out for two days. Mm. Yeah. Or it's a mixture of both. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I mean I, as you said that night, I was behaving like that. Like a You were. And then I didn't. Disney I was a villain and then I... <laughs> Disney villain, a royal Disney villain. Whatever. Yeah. You get you get this depressed. like indignation about you. It's really funny. You get you act really royal. Yes. Well, I did have a few bogans um, that I was hanging around with. Then I was I I chose people who were drunks. Yeah. Who didn't even work. God, I hated staying bloody with you at hell. That house, but I had no. I had I had that ex school principal who was a drunk. He used to come around all the time. Oh, I didn't know that. I remember lots of randoms we were, came We were around. only friends, but the most important thing for them was that they all drank a lot. Mm. So, I mean, I remember, I remember you being suicidal a few times when I was younger. Mm. And I remember, Re- I don't remember this, but Rhiannon has told me this, that there was one time when you had said you were going to kill yourself and she didn't know how to call an ambulance, so she called Dad in Tumut and Dad called an ambulance from Tumut. So we must have been really little. I can't remember that at all. Mm. Makes me sad. Mm. Yeah. But, I mean, I get it because, like, I did it a few times in my early 20s. It's like a... I mean, I know for me it's a brain injury. Well, that was when I first went on antidepressants, was in my early 20s. Yeah. Do you remember when I came to Dubbo? Yeah, you look like a movie star. (laughs) Why do you say that? What do you mean? You turned up in this taxi. Well, how else was I going to like, get there? But it looked like you were in a limo to me. Why? (laughs) Why? I don't understand. I don't know, Rosie. Why? What was I wearing? Like, why do you? Why do you say I was like a movie I star? Know you had these glasses and your blonde hair flowing in the wind. <laughs> I didn't feel like a movie star. I'd just been in a mental home for almost a month, I don't so know. I felt like shit. I think Rick said that he went past the cab on the way back from the airport or something, and he saw you sitting in the back of the yeah. cab or something. I don't know. That was really good, though. But like I'd, um, you guys just flew me out there straight away. Like it was, I. It's what I really needed. Yeah. And then I remember I just sat on the couch. I just literally sat on the couch the whole time. And Rick would cook and just bring food to me. 
Yeah, he's always been good if anyone's ever, um, you know, needs help. Did um, you like looking after me that week? Yes, I did. It was really good, Mum. Because I, I left, I wasn't, I hadn't left my job. I was on long service leave at that mm. stage. So I wasn't at work. So it was good looking after my my little girl. What were your thoughts about where I was at mental illness-wise? Were you surprised? What do you mean? Well, like that I ended up having all these like quite serious mental health problems. No, I started getting worried about you when you were in um, high school. Really? When? Why? Just the the red flags were there to me. Shut up. Really? There was an instability, an emotional instability that had to... um, you kept an eye on. You know I was I mean? a very emotional little kid. Remember, I used to cry all the yeah, time. Yeah, and I was not really not as a young child. It mainly happened at the college. Yeah, you were a very resilient young child, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, you just started to fall apart from that horrible college. Well, I think I mean, no yeah, wonder that's when things mainly started. No wonder. I mean, how could anyone? Uh, I mean, oh, I don't want to go go into that again. But yeah. I just I knew there was problems, and I was also really worried because you'd taken Roaccutane for my skin, and that can lead to depression and panic attacks. Mm. And there's actually been class actions by people who were taking that. I don't know if that was the cause for me, well, though. No, but they do I was say so that badly that bullied, it and did, it did. It did um, happen with... Because you didn't have those panic attacks until after you went on the Roaccutane. You know that? But I think also really I was headed I was headed for a crash anyway. Well, there was think... a combination, and I just don't think that helped. It was the combination of everything. It just... I realised that there was... It wasn't... Things were not right. It's just so surprising to me that you uh, were worried that early. I wasn't, I didn't even, I wasn't. Well, I mean, I knew obviously I had some kind of problem when um, I left uni after a month and had a breakdown. But before that, I thought I was sad at boarding school because I was getting bullied. I didn't put it down to anything else. Mm. Mm. Um, And then also the relationship with Josh was extremely needy. Yeah, very. And you very would you'd you would react to any kind of perceived um, rejection from him mm. very easily. So you definitely weren't in a good headspace, and I realised that. So what was to eventuate in your life and your experiences of mental health and the public system really didn't um, shock me. I hated it so much. Like I thought when you're a kid and you grow up around people, you know, who have mental health problems, which you did and dad did, you think like I'll never grow up to be like that ever. Like I'll never, and and I, I hated it for a long time that I was the one who was like getting all these panic attacks and was having all these suicidal thoughts and couldn't control my brain and I was just like, why? Like, I, I just 
so badly wanted it to not be me. I was like, why is it me? Do you know what I mean? I felt I was so I felt so ripped off and it was like so unfair. Yeah. But you can't control it. Well you can't and it's you you're the only one who can do anything about it. Yeah. No one else can do anything for you. I guess I mean it's ultimately like... you're alone, aren't you? Well yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you alone can do anything. And then, you know, I to help yourself. Largely got no one else. A lot better. Well, until through last a, year. Well, through a lot of hard work. Well, yeah, I did work so hard. Therapy is so hard, man. I would never. I'd. I'd. I'd always avoid that. I, I couldn't. I couldn't cope with that. No, well, I worked really hard. Yeah, and I then think also, I'm really good that you've done that. Gained a million kilos as like a human body armor, but we'll talk about that next week. Oh, are we? We're going to talk about that. Yeah, my weight loss surgery's in here. Oh, that's good. Have you even read this book, Mum? Yes, I have. I've read, I've, I read it three times last year. Thank you. Three times. Yes, I've read it three times because I kept on forgetting. And Was that your favourite? Is that your favourite chapter, the one where you look after me in Dubbo? I like, no, I like that. It sort of portrays me as someone with a lot of feeling. Well, no, you were <laughs> the only person I wanted to be around then. I like the way you've written that. Actually. I just needed a hug. Like when I was little and I used to scream unless you were holding me. You had to vacuum the house while holding me. I did. I did. I knew what was up. I wasn't letting go. Couldn't put you down. Very clingy. Always been very clingy. But, you know, when when you got a little older, you weren't like that. You went used to go off to preschool without any problems and daycare. Mm. So you adjusted pretty well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe you're saying you don't remember that night. I can't really remember it. I sort of remember. <laughs> I know. I vaguely re- I sort of remember it, but I don't remember it. What do you remember? A chair in the tree. Yeah. But I don't know how to tie a noose. Well, I don't know. You. I said a makeshift I'd noose. Go- you I would like- have had to have Googled it. I remember I was watching. Too- I would have been too drunk to follow the directions anyway. <laughs> Because <laughs> you did, but it was around your neck. It was, and then Bloody drama queen. It freaking well, drama no, queen. You oh yeah, then back, unstable. back to normal the next day and off to work. Do you know how guilty you I felt Jesus for Christ. so long that so I? So you should have. I could have bloody. I could have been dead. I know, mum. <laughs> no, well, there's obviously a reason why. You know. I'm didn't sure I in the tree and it broke. I'm sure I would have run down. I'm sure, but the branch broke, and then lucky the the, the tree had termites, Rosie. So you, you do be, remember the tree? You would have been guilty. Yes, yeah, I would Mom. be here. Thanks, Mum. <laughs> It's hilarious. No, no, no. it's, it's just something that has emotionally traumatized me for the last. What, no. Ten years. You would have done something, I'm sure. No, Wouldn't I'm sure I would have. Of course I would have. But of course, I'm sure I would have. I mean, I hate that the branch broke, which means I'll never know that I would have. But I'm sure I would have. I just... You were in so much pain for so long, Mum. Like, sometimes I just thought maybe you... You wanted to die, like you just wanted to be at peace. You yeah. know what I mean? Sometimes I did. 
Especially, but, you know, but then drinking just made it so much worse. The way you're feeling made, yeah. makes it so much worse. You know, so yeah, very bad. You just got to sit with that feeling. You do, because it will pass. Mm. Just takes time. That sounds like the most cliche advice, but it is so true. It is. You think, oh, you think, oh, it's just the end of the world. I've got no energy. I may as well just die. Mm. You know. I always, people ask me my advice all the time about this. Won't be long before I die. And I say to them, you've just (coughs) got to remember that the brain that tells you to hurt yourself is lying to you. Like, that's not your actual brain. That's an unwell brain. And you just have to wait. Like, even 10-second blocks get through 10 seconds, get through another 10 seconds, get through another 10 seconds. Like, that's a mentally ill brain, and that feeling does pass. And when you say that to people, it's like it sounds so cliche and shit, but it is just, like, the simplest <sighs> cliche advice is actually the true advice in this case. You just have to wait for it to pass because it does. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for talking about this one, Mum. In the next episode, I can't believe like when you're fat, people feel like it's their right to just comment on your body publicly, like in front of you. Like I would get people coming up to me on the street, like people would yell always, but then I would also get people concern trolling me. So they would come up to me on the street and say, Hi, I just want to let you know that I tried such and such diet and it really worked for me. I'm like, are you fucking kidding? I don't know you. Like, what? Like, people would do that to me all the time. Well, it's it was better awful. than having people scream at you and abuse no, you. No, it's not. It? No, it's not actually. It's probably. Well, I, it's I'd worse never go in up a way. This is Mum Says My Memoir Is a Lie. Recording assistance by Felix Bray. Audio production by Nick Slater. Executive producer is Jamie Show. Listener.